Well, good morning. We can go ahead and open up our Bibles to Exodus chapter 21. Thank you to AJ for creating the new sermon video that you just watched to kind of introduce us into the sermon. Uh, This new video really reflects uh, a noticeable shift that has occurred in the book of Exodus that um, we will kind of continue to see throughout the back half. And, And just by the way, side note, AJ, voiceover work. I think there's a future there. I'm just saying. He's got, the guy's got a voice for uh, radio, as they used to say. Um, but appreciate the work he put in for that. And uh, where we stand now, if the Lord allows, we have about eight or nine sermons left in the book of Exodus. And, and, and the shift that uh, has really occurred is, is what we saw over the last two weeks. It, it was in chapter 20 was the kind of the real turning point. Uh, and those verse. Those first two verses in Exodus 20 will be on that intro video to kind of, again, set the stage, serve as the thesis for the back half of this book. Those verses being, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And again, we spent two weeks on chapter 20 where the ten words were spoken. And and now the rest of the book, we will see the ten words applied. So here's Exodus in a nutshell. Here's the elevator pitch. God graciously reveals himself. God saves his people from slavery by his grace, not by their works. And then God gives these ten words and then applies these ten words to guide Israel on how they should live on their way to the promised land. And again, just want to continue to lay before us, why does this matter for us? It's 2020, we're in the church, why does this story matter? Why does this book matter? And some of you, um, I'm sure, are able to even pick up the parallels as I'm explaining Exodus, that that, that this is where it's headed, right? That the, the, the rest of the Bible will kind of look back on this part of Exodus, this journey from Egypt to the promised land as the foundational parallel of the Christian life, of being freed from the enslavement of sin and on the way to eternal glory in heaven, that we in the church are in the proverbial wilderness. And God reveals himself as the one true God. He rescues us from darkness through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. And then upon being freed, God now starts to guide us on on how should we live? How then should we live as we journey towards glory there's going to be kind of two major areas that he's going to guide the people of God through the wilderness in this back half of Exodus. Two areas, um, how to worship him and then how to live amongst one another as the people of God. And so that's the overarching reason, kind of sets us up for today. Um, but, but we got to do kind of the hard work of understanding and unpacking um, these passages um, and see, okay, what still applies directly to the church today? What are more principles? Um, that it's often not a one-to-one correlation. Uh, we're going to see today this kind of section of laws that are not binding on the church. But the principles beneath them are, and that is hard work But we have to be willing to, as God puts it in this passage, quote, pay careful attention. And the reason why it's not easy work is that while I guarantee um, almost everyone has heard some kind of teaching or sermon or study on the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. Exodus 20 is this very familiar passage in the church today. But I would likewise guarantee that almost nobody has heard a sermon or kind of deep teaching on Exodus 21. 
and you'll see why when we read it in a moment. We're going to focus on the exposition of the first 11 verses of chapter 21, because I think they appear to be the most difficult, and then that will become applied to uh, the rest of the chapter into 22 and 23, which we won't be able to cover. But after God spoke to all of Israel in Exodus 20, now he again just speaks to Moses, starting in 21. So follow along as I read Exodus 21, 1 through 11. Now these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years. And in the seventh, he shall go out free for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free, then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost. And his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master, who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people, since he has broken faith with her. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as with a daughter. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. And if he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. Well, what in the world are we going to do with this? It is a passage that, at first glance, might make you grimace as you read it, like, okay, that doesn't sound good, that doesn't translate well to today, this is all kind of strange, now I know why, I haven't heard much teaching on Exodus 21, why this often gets skipped over, which is all the more reason why we need to really dig in, again, do the hard work of understanding what is happening here, that Israel is a nation of one to two million people who have never been free before. They've always been a nation under slavery. They've never understood self-rule. They never understood self-regulation. And so God is applying the principles of the ten words now to everyday life, particularly the aspects of life that are difficult to legislate. I mean, if we were just to go through quickly through all the topics that would get addressed in chapters 21, 22, and 23, we see first slavery, which we'll see in a moment is not slavery as we think it today. We see regulation on marriage, on the death penalty, on lawsuits, on protecting the poor, on orphan care, on treating outsiders and foreigners, on loving your enemies, right? These are kind of hot topics. They were then, they still are now, but Israel needed guidance because they don't know what it's like to live as a free people who are committed to the one true God. How then should we live? Let me share kind of more of a modern-day concrete example to help illustrate and paint this picture for us. Um, One of our missions partners here at Grace is an organization called Straight Ahead Ministries. It's led by a man named Scott Larson. We've been partnering with them for a long time. And they are a prison ministry uh, that is committed to working with youth and teens within the juvenile system up in New England. And their ministry certainly includes um, running Bible studies and kind of evangelistic um, events within the prisons. 
sharing the love of Christ, inviting these young men and women to put their faith in Christ. But as Scott has said uh, multiple times, it, it doesn't just kind of stop there. Because he'll tell us, listen, everyone believes in Jesus when they're in prison. And he's obviously kind of overstating that to make the point, but uh, that, that, uh, why not say yes to Jesus? And, and somebody comes in and they share and they kind of show what it could mean for them and for their life. And for a lot of men and women who are in prison, like they got nothing else to lose. It can't get any worse. So teens will often make these commitments and, and Scott and his team will kind of trust these commitments to the Lord, but they want to very much stay dialed in with them. And the most important part of their ministry is what they call the re-entry program. When these juvenile offenders are set free from prison, they often go home to the same neighborhoods, the same friends, the same circumstances they were in when they, that put them into prison in the first place. And so they need to be taught how to re-enter into the world as free young men and women who now believe in Christ and to not live in such a way uh, that will make them kind of drift and fall away and get them into the spot they were to begin with. From their website, it says their program includes educational services, job readiness training, leadership development, and volunteer service opportunities. Quote, to see them through every challenge that comes up as they work to develop new skills, deep faith, and strong values. This is what God is doing for Israel in Exodus 21. He's inserting them into a re-entry program, giving them guidelines on the practical everyday interactions amongst one another that will orient them towards a love for him and love for one another. And so chapters, again, 21 through 23, it kind of reads like case law. You, you, you can tell because every other line starts with words like when, um, when this happens, do that, when that happens, do this. Nine verses in chapter 21 start with when, four start with whoever. You get to chapter 22, seven verses start with if, if this, then that. This is case law, right? This is kind of civil law language, when, whoever, if, which is why these laws do not directly apply to the church because in the New Covenant, the people of God were not a theocracy. Um, but while this case law is not necessarily binding on the church, the principles behind the laws do apply to the church. And so listen close. Um, the, the common thread throughout these chapters is God who is wanting to protect the rights of those who typically get oppressed and marginalized. That the human heart and human cultures are oriented towards oppression. Strong, overcoming the weak. Powerful, exploiting the less powerful. And God is showing here that he cares about justice. He cares about what is doing right. And on acting on behalf of those that tend to get oppressed, especially in the ancient world. I think the heart of God can be summed up most famously in the prophetic book of Micah. When he says in Micah 6, verse 8, He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. 
So we're not going to, again, be able to dig into each and every law across the three chapters, but I want to kind of see um, how this plays out in these first 11 verses of chapter 21. Which, again, at first glance, they seem like a real downer, don't they? Like, we go from the epic giving of the ten words to now laws regulating slavery. And the reason why that's often a downer to us at first glance is because when we read slavery, what do we immediately think of? We think of the history of our own country, of the chattel slavery of the 18th and 19th centuries where Africans were kidnapped against their own will, shipped across the world, sold as property for life with no rights and no freedoms. But this is not what is being talked about in this passage. Um, In fact, that Hebrew word um, that gets translated for slavery here is the word ebed, E-B-E-D. Um, and that same word can get translated as servant. In fact, I think if you're reading at NIV, it says servant. It can uh, be translated as bond servant or what we would consider like a modern-day employee. And that the Hebrew system of slavery was a voluntary system where men and women of the same nation entered into a contract of servitude to either pay off a debt or to work for provision. Because slaves would become part of the household. Slaves were never considered property in the Bible. Um, Because in later verses, Moses will distinguish between property and slaves. That that slaves were people. They were image bearers. They were not owned in the sense that slaves were owned in American history. So so I think if you a a modern day equivalent to kind of um, just help us think through this, is the way that men and women today sign up for military service, Um, right? So my brother entered the military by going into West Point. And when you go into a military academy, you get a free education, Uh, but not really because technically a debt builds up over the four years of their education and they agree to then enter and serve in the army for five years after graduation that they are bound to. So it's kind of debt paid off with time served. And at the end of the five years, you can choose to stay or you're free to leave. And so again, the system of slaves and masters here in Exodus chapter 21 is closer, I think, to how we view um, owners and employees that are under a contract, as opposed to the chattel slavery of our nation's history. Um, Now, as an aside, um, did many so-called Christians, entire churches, entire denominations in America use and abuse the Word of God and chapters like this to justify their sinful, racist institutions of slavery? They absolutely did. And it was wrong. It was sinful. And today, are there still so-called Christians who harbor racist worldviews that dehumanize people, especially African Americans, based upon the color of their skin? Yes. Because the horror of slavery casts a long shadow on our country, and that still manifests itself in various ways today. And it's also true 
that Christians are the ones who led the charge of abolition, both here and in England, and it will be Christians who will continue to seek heart-level racial reconciliation today, and that I am sure. Okay, we dig into what's happening here. What, what, what God is doing through Moses is he is regulating these systems and everyday operations of Israel in a way that, again, advocates for those who tend to get oppressed. Because when he's talking about slaves here, what's the first thing he talks about? How they go free. How after six years of work, they are free to go. If they come in single, they leave single. If they come in married, they leave married. If they get married while working, he has the choice to stay or leave because his wife has a contract of her own. God is building freedom into the fabric of their workforce, something that the ancient world had no idea about regulating a system that will not lead to oppression. And then verses 7 through 11, we see um, this kind of somewhat messy entanglement of uh, slavery and now marriage. And admittedly, we don't kind of know all the details here, but it seems to be the language of arranged marriages um, more so than just daughters getting sold to masters. Arranged marriages have uh, dominated the majority of history. It still exists very much in some countries and cultures today. And fathers generally seek out arranged marriages for the benefit of their daughters to ensure their prospects of uh, being uh, cared for in marriage. And yet again, what is the really only thing, not knowing all the details about this, but what's the only thing that Moses chooses to write from these laws that he gets from God is that he regulates for the purpose of protecting the rights of the women to ensure that they're not just cast aside. So if her husband doesn't care for her as his wife, she's immediately free to go. She's not bound to him. He doesn't have a right to go and sell her to a foreign people. If he takes another wife, that she shall not be diminished. And if he does neglect her, she's free. No payment needed, not bound by the original agreement. Some commentators will connect this passage in Exodus 21 to 1 Corinthians 7, when Paul is giving instruction to marriages and men and women in the covenant of marriage. And while he says it is not God's design for divorce, Paul makes the concession there that if an unbelieving spouse deserts the covenant of marriage, then the one who is deserted is called to peace, free to be released. But either way, as cringeworthy as these verses may come across to modern ears, again, what's the bottom line? That God is advocating first and foremost to the ones not in power, but rather to the ones who are not in power, ensuring that they don't get oppressed or treated in a way that is marginalized or uh, treating them as less than human. And that will be the common thread throughout chapter 21, chapter 22, the beginning of chapter 23, and all these different areas of society that needed to be addressed to, again, guide Israel in their re-entry program from a life of slavery to a life in freedom.
Now turn ahead with me in your Bibles to chapter 23, verses 20 to 33. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. When my angel goes before you and brings you the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites, the Hippites and the Jebusites, and I blot them out, you shall not bow down to their gods nor serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. You shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water, and I will take sickness away from among you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my terror before you and will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come, and I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. And I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, the Hittites from before you. I will not drive them out from before you in one year, in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little, I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possessed the land. And I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the Euphrates. For I will give you the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you shall drive them out from before you. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. Well, after this series of laws and regulations and rules, now we see a promise laid before Israel. A promise of what is coming for the people of God. The land of Canaan, the land flowing with milk and honey, where the people will dwell for all generations. And it reminds them that all the rules that were just given flow from the relational presence of God Himself, right? This is important. They are rules that flow from a relationship, from a covenant. They're not rules in order to enter into a relationship. They are rules or vows that come from a relationship, God says he sends an angel to guard you along the way, to go before you. You walk in this path. We know Israel also has the cloud that goes before them and the fire that follows behind them, leading them the entire way. But notice the intertwining connection of God's promises and God's rules. His promise doesn't cancel out the need for rules, But it includes the giving of regulations along with the strength and the ability to obey them. He says, guys, you have a promised land before you, but you must be careful to obey my voice so that it will go well for you. This is the regulated promise of God's love. Uh, Another way for us to think about this is is, uh, what often plays out between parents and young children, and I know from experience. Um, So let me share what happened this past week in our home. Um, After 10 weeks of strict isolation and quarantine, Rochelle and I finally broke. And we broke in the form of sending our oldest two kids to spend uh, this past Memorial Day weekend 
with my parents up in Connecticut, and it was just a win-win for all. Um, but you'd think, when we told the kids a couple weeks prior that this was the plan, that they were going to Disney World. All right, for, again, two weeks leading up to it, they were so excited, just counting down the days um, because they were feeling the weight, like all of us, of quarantine and in their five- and three-year-old minds. Uh, the thought of going anywhere was going to be like a once-in-a-lifetime trip. And so we would tell them for those weeks leading up to it, hey, we are happy to do this for you, but you need to behave leading up to this trip. And you need to listen to mom and dad so that you can go. Now, when you hear that, is that manipulative parenting? Kind of holding this promise over their head to control their actions? Um, well, maybe in some ways we take that too far. Uh, but at its best, it is us regulating a promise for their joy. We know that things will go well for them if they behave and that they are miserable when they disobey because there are real consequences to disobedience. So this promise of what was coming in the future would better motivate them to listen and obey in the present, which leads to real joy in them in the present and for when they will go to their Connecticut Disney trip. And that's what God is doing. And that's not just what God does in the Old Testament, but still today. As the church journeys to the promised land of eternal glory, he guides us today on how to live in relationship with him for his glory and our joy. And, and so hang with me here. I know we're kind of like in the weeds here, but just hang with me because I think this is the biggest misunderstanding when it comes to the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, the Old Testament and the New Testament, that many people just view it like too simplistically, that the Old Testament is about obeying rules and then the New Testament is about grace, where then rules don't matter anymore. It's just grace. But neither of those statements are true. The Old Covenant was not just rules with no grace. And the new covenant is not just grace with no rules. John Piper puts it this way. The basic difference between the old covenant offered by God through the Mosaic law and the new covenant offered by God through Christ is not that one had commandments and the other doesn't. The key differences are that the Messiah, Jesus, has come and shed the blood of the new covenant and the promised new heart and the enabling power of the Holy Spirit have been given through faith. In the old covenant, the gracious enabling power to obey God was not poured out as fully as it is since Jesus. So the new covenant is not wholly different it's not, it, but rather it is God's plan more fully realized. And even so, Jesus says that you are full, sa fully saved by grace. That is my grace and my blood shed for you that saves you. And one of the signs of salvation that you have been saved is the strength and pursuit to obey my commands. John 14, 15, Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. That's new covenant language. 
more fully realized in the new covenant because of the Holy Spirit that dwells within us and equips us to live this way. And His commands are not burdensome. They are for our joy. Not to make us feel guilty, but to invite us into a relationship where we pursue Him for His glory and we join Him in the mission of the world to make disciples as we journey together to the promised land. So, here's the thing. I want to make sure that we are kind of crystal clear and on the same page. And I want to give just three brief applications to the church because of Exodus 21. It is massively undertaught in the church today, these three chapters. But we are missing something if we just kind of skip and gloss over it. So, three applications briefly for the church because of these chapters. Number one. True freedom is found in submission to Christ. When your heart is captured by the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we are um, saved from a life of sin and rebellion, not by our good works, not by our good behavior, not because we're more, wor- more moral than the world or our values are so strong, but we are saved solely by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That's why he came, because we couldn't save ourselves. And when your heart is made new, It doesn't mean that obedience just doesn't matter anymore or good works don't matter. It's not, well, I I thought I was saved by the law, by following a certain set of rules, but now in Christ I'm free from having to follow any rules. I'm free from the pressure of good works. That is an incomplete and I think false gospel. The gospel says that I was not saved by good works, but I was saved for good works. You see, God frees us to worship Him, to pursue Him, which which looks like what? What does a life like that look like? A life committed to loving God and loving neighbor. The ten words. And this is why God kept having Moses both tell the nation of Israel and Pharaoh when they were in Egypt, let my people go that they may serve me. That God saves us for His glory, not our glory. He saves us for the purpose of the worship and praise of His glorious grace. In the book of Romans, Paul is very careful to um, not allow people to take the gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in a direction where that gets abused. And look at the language he uses with Exodus 21 in mind. This is Romans 6, 15-18. What then? Are we to sin because we are no longer under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you were present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. God does not free us from sin to then just exist and do nothing. He does not um, save you so that you can just kind of 
be the king of your own life and just decide everything for yourself so that you can just do you, man. That's not what God does. And you know what? That sounds a lot more like hell than heaven. He saves us to become servants, even slaves to Him. As singer-theologian Bob Dylan put it in his 1979 classic, Gotta Serve Somebody, he says, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, you are. You're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Church, true freedom is found in submission as a slave for Christ. Second implication for the church today is the importance of discipleship in the local church. The importance of discipleship in the local church. God God sets a pattern here by um, guiding his people on how to worship him and how to live amongst one another after they have been saved from Egypt. Again, he didn't just save them and then kind of bring them across the Red Sea into the wilderness and be like, all right, see ya. You're on your own. I'll see you in the promised land. You'll figure it out. No, they, they wouldn't figure it out on their own. They needed to be taught. They needed to be guided. They needed to be reminded and rebuked and disciplined and encouraged and empowered on how to live as the people of God. It's why in the prison ministry, straight ahead, doesn't see young men and women come to faith in prison and just say, all right, good luck out there. I hope you make it. It's why when a man and woman choose to enter the covenant of marriage on their wedding day, what are they doing? They're saying vows to one another, constraining themselves by commitment. They're not just saying, okay, we made it to the wedding day. Now we can just do whatever we want. That's not freedom. That's not joy. It's, it's a covenant of I'm constraining. I'm choosing to enter into this. I'm, I'm, I'm wanting some things to be guided and led for us. That, that the wedding day is not the end of the story for a couple. It's just the beginning. And so it is in the church. When men and women come to saving faith, we need to be discipled. We need to be taught what it means to follow God to worship Him, to live amongst the people of God. It shouldn't just be sink or swim in the local church. It shouldn't be just get you to the point where you believe and then we just let you go and you figure it out on your own. This is the pattern of the New Testament letters to reveal Christ, to reveal salvation in the first half, and then to give very practical, applicational instruction on how to live in the back half. That the gospel sets the foundation for the Christian life. And it sets the foundation of which we build our lives upon. And then lastly, number three. These chapters help communicate to us of the prioritization of pursuing justice for the oppressed and the marginalized. Again, in the New Covenant... The church no longer oversees civil law like the elders of Israel did. We're not creating legislation that the world has to follow, but rather we are submitting ourselves under the governing authorities of the land as directed in Romans 13. But what 
principles remain specifically from Exodus 21 to Exodus 23 is the responsibility of the people of God to seek after and advocate for the rights of those in our churches and in our communities who often get marginalized and oppressed in our world. The New Testament has a heavy focus upon care for widows and orphans in and around the churches and cities that those churches were planted in. And so right away in the Bible, in those letters, pursuing biblical justice was an immediate aspect and priority of churches where the gospel was being preached. And today, churches should still have this in their DNA, a desire to advocate for and seek the well-being of those people groups who get marginalized. And yes, we are grateful to be in a nation where there are government programs that do this as well, but that doesn't mean that the church should just punt on their responsibility altogether. I say often that no one church can do everything that needs to be done, but every church should do something. So it's not Grace Church, we got to figure out a way to do it all, but that we are a church in the mix of a greater coalition of churches who seek justice together. Let me give you one concrete example, or a couple. There are currently 443,000 children in the foster care system in the United States. And there are roughly 385,000 churches in the United States. Meaning that if one family from every church, one family from every church adopted one child in 2020, over 85% of the foster care system would be cleared out this year. Now, will that happen? Probably not. But could it happen? Why not? What's it look like for churches to not only encourage families to pursue foster care and adoption, but to fund it, to support it, to pursue it? In a fallen world, there is no shortage of causes that Christians and the church can take up. With the mindset of pursuing justice and standing for those who often get marginalized in immigration, sexuality, the environment, being pro-life from the womb to the grave, not just being pro-birth, of battling racism. Man, we did not need another example of African Americans being treated differently and unlawfully and killed and yet Soberly, here we are, multiple times, again, in the span of just a few weeks. God cares about what his people care about. And he especially cares about what we do to seek mercy and do justice in the time and places we live in. No church can do everything, but every church can do something. And as slaves for Christ, we disciple one another upon the foundation of the gospel. And then we live out the implications of the gospel together 
in a way that brings glory to God. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for hard passages. We thank you for passages where we read and we initially say, what are we going to do with this? And we thank you how you reveal yourself, Lord, your character and your nature and your plan and hope for your people. We thank you how you reveal your son, Christ, and the opportunity we have to trust fully upon him. And then in that salvation, that we have opportunities to live that out in such a way that brings you glory and seeks the good of those around us. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.